had a Bible, turn with me, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. I told you guys last week that I'm so thankful for chapter 12 because chapter 11 is such a difficult part of the story. King David has been the man after God's own heart, and his life has been good. It's been blessed up to this point. But in chapter 11, it is such a, a sad turning point in the story because rather than engaging in the calling that God gave him, he remained at home while his own men were fighting in battle. He stayed at home, and he was depressed, he was bored, and he was tempted. He was so tempted that he went looking for trouble. He went onto the top of his home, and he saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba who was bathing. He sent for her. She became pregnant, and then he sought to cover over his sin, like so many of us do when we're caught or we're trapped in a sin, he has her husband come home from the war, but Uriah is so faithful he would not enjoy the comforts of home or the comforts of his wife. And he said, how could I do that when my own men, your men, are in battle fighting on your behalf? And so David sent Uriah to the front lines and had the men of his troops pull back so that Uriah would be exposed and that he would be killed. And that's exactly what happened. And so this is where we find the story today. David, stuck in his sin, unrepentant, still hard-hearted, fleeing from God and not listening, but I thank God for a man named Nathan who loved God, was faithful and bold. And I want you to think, before we read this passage, you're talking about ultimate human authority in this instance. He is the king. There are no three branches of government to hold him accountable. He is the king. He does what he wants to do. How do you talk to that man when he is caught in sin? We turn to our passage, chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine being a friend to David. Imagine being Nathan, a, a pastor to David. What is he to do? What is he to say? And so he comes up. He's so wise and much more wise than me. I, being the bulldog, apparently, would go right up to him and tell him, you're wrong, man. But instead, he's wise, and he tells him a story and said, there is a rich man, and there is a poor man, and this rich man has flocks and herds and tons of animals, but this poor man has one little lamb, a little ewe lamb, 
and they raise it in their home, not to grow up to eat it, but as a pet. They love this lamb like a daughter. It's like perhaps your own pet. You can relate to this. My precious dog that I love so much. It's like that. And you say to one another, if you have, if you have a dog, you say, they're like a family member or, or perhaps a cat. I have that hard, I find that hard to believe, but, <laughs> but a pet that you love, forgive me, cat lovers, and you love your pet, and that's what's going on here. But the rich man has a guest come in from out of town, and he's so miserly that he won't take one of his own from his fields that are being prepared to eat. Instead, he takes this pet from this family that has nothing, and they kill it, they butcher it, and they devour it for their own pleasure. He tells him this story, and David is enraged, of course, and he says, that man deserves to die, and he doesn't say, therefore, he'll die, but he does say he deserves to die, but he will repay the the poor man four times for the lamb. And then David is told by Nathan with force, finally, and giving an account, Nathan, I believe, points his finger at him and says, but you are that man. You are that man. David is an adulterer. We know that. He is a liar who tried to cover his sin with a lie. He's a murderer. And today we see he's a hypocrite. But he's also, if you can believe it, still a man after God's own heart. How on earth can that be? But it is. There are several ways to describe hypocrisy, but one of them is judging other people harshly when they have done the exact same things that you have done. And that's what David is doing. Nathan boldly tells him this story, and he's so angry, but this is exactly what David has done. And today, we're not talking about hypocrisy. Instead, we're talking about repentance. And while the narrator of 2 Samuel doesn't give us a lot of detail of like how David responded in that moment, I am so thankful that David, led by the Holy Spirit, wrote Psalm 51, which is his heart response to this situation. I don't know if it took hours or weeks or months for him to get to this place, but after this confrontation, David is finally brought to a heart of repentance, we'll see from Psalm 51. It's found in your bulletin today as well. I praise God for a guy like Nathan in this story. And I want to start with a question for you. Do you have anyone in your life that would be so bold that if you were caught trapped in a sin and unrepentant, not willing to turn back to God, turn back to what is right, do you have anyone in your life that would be willing to get in your face, point a finger and say, but you are that man. You are that woman. And if so, if you have that person, how would you respond? With defensiveness, anger, or would you receive it? We need people like Nathan in our lives. We need to be like Nathan to other people in our lives. We need one another so much. I hope you know and have seen in your, in your own life that when we don't avail ourselves to one another, which is one of the means of God's grace God has given us, the church, to be the church for one another, how quickly we can fall into sin. Rather than being with his people, David remained at home, and look what happened. We give us Psalm 51, and this morning we're going to look at this issue of repentance. Repentance, Martin Luther 
uh, the famous reformer in the church said, the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. The entirety of the Christian life is repentance and faith, he said. Repentance and faith. It's not, the, the in, it's not only the entrance to becoming a Christian, repentance and faith in Jesus. It's what keeps you going as a Christian. Repentance and faith. The man after God's own heart. Stuck in this disastrous situation, all of his own making. What is his way out? I think we all feel pretty good about walking with the Lord when we you know, put together some discipline. You're here this morning. like You're probably going to feel pretty good about yourself spiritually today. I, I went to church. Maybe you read your Bible this week. That's awesome. Maybe you prayed. Maybe you s- truly sensed the Lord. Maybe you were able to say no to some temptation or sin that's been in your life this week, and you're feeling closer to the Lord. Praise God. But what do you do when you know you've sinned? Where do you go when things are not good, when you're not being disciplined, when you've broken other people's hearts, maybe God's heart, maybe your own heart? Where on earth do you go then? Repentance and faith. What do you do that when you see even your good deeds, when you are righteous, when you're putting together good things and you're being disciplined and you're saying no to sin, and then you look in your own heart and you see that there are mixed motives and selfishness and pride even, and you begin to think, I'm a little better than other people because I've gone to church most Sundays this year, and I've read the Bible, and I've been kind to the poor or whatever. You begin to feel prideful, and then where do you go because your motives are so mixed? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. It is the centerpiece of the Christian life, and this morning we're going to see how do we repent? How on earth do we repent? From Psalm 51, And we're going to see four things about repentance. We have to own it, we have to name it, we have to grieve it, and we have to run to the Lord, the gospel. We have to run to Jesus. This is one of the central kind of teachings of our church. I've I've spoken about this issue many times. I've even written about it. Friends, this is one of the central things that makes New Valley what it is. We believe in the power of repentance and faith. And we believe this is one of the turning points and the difference makers between actually having healthy human relationships and a relationship with God. It's about repentance and faith. And you have to own it. You have to name it. You have to grieve it. And you have to run to Jesus. First of all, owning it. Psalm 51, verse 3. David wrote, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He owns it. I, again, I wonder how long it took to get to this place. And I don't think David sat down and wrote this psalm like 15 minutes after Nathan came to him. I'm guessing this was over months of the Holy Spirit's work. But he finally gets to the place where he says in verse 3, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Repentance begins what I have found where blaming ends. Repentance starts, the process of repentance starts when your blaming and your blame shifting starts to come to an end. My sin is ever before me. My transgressions are before me. He's not bargaining. He doesn't say, oh God, I'm going to do better this time. I swear to you, I know I've blown it a million other times, but this is the time. I promise I'll be better. I'm not going to blow it anymore. He doesn't talk about promises or or things he's going to do or his action items. He just says, my sin is ever before me. He doesn't talk about anybody else either. Have you noticed? 
It's Bathsheba's fault. What is she doing up bathing on the roof? He simply says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. You're my only hope. Question, how do you know if somebody is truly repentant? That's a critical thing in a marriage. That's a critical thing in any close relationship. That's a critical relationship in, in a dating relationship. How do you know? Because we hurt one another. We wound one another. How do we know if the person means it? And it takes time. But one of the ways you know that somebody's actually repentant is they actually own it and they quit the blame shifting. We blame shift when we literally take the blame, right? I mean, it's, it's a really descriptive phrase if you think about it. Blame shift. That's like taking the blame and we don't want it on us. Who does, right? And you shift it off onto somebody else. You take the blame off of yourself and you place it, right, on somebody else, some other circumstance, some excuse. Yes, I did wrong. I know that was a problem, but... But they did that. She said this. He did this. If you really knew my background, my emotional life, my history, my story, I didn't drink coffee this morning, you know, whatever it is, we are looking just to get it off of us and shift the blame off. But what I've found is when people are actually being serious and true repentance is coming, that blame shifting starts to cease. Or at least you catch yourself, right? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm blame shifting. Do you want to grow in your relationship with God and others? Friends, this is so key. And it takes the gospel to get you there because it takes a tremendously secure person to own it. I will own it because I know that God is for me and he loves me and, and I believe the gospel, so I will own it. I'm going to quit blaming other people. I own it. Next, name it. Verses 4 through 5 of Psalm 51, David famously says, Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me? He is getting down to the nitty-gritty, right? And there's so much here. We could spend all morning on just this passage. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now, wait a minute, David. I remember this lady named Bathsheba. I remember a dude you killed, uh, Uriah. Like, against, it's not just against God, it's against others. And again, David is not... He's not minimizing here. He's actually maximizing. So what he's saying, yes, of course I sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, of course I sinned against Uriah. But ultimately, all of our sin gets placed up to the Lord. And he's getting down to its base, its most elementary level. I am sinning, and I've sinned against you, O Lord, primarily. Now, what I love is that David admits that he has sinned, but far more important, he admits that he is a sinner. That's the, that is critical. I find that nearly everybody is willing to admit that they have sinned, right? Well, of course I've sinned. I mean, who doesn't? We all 
we all mess up. We all, everyone is willing to admit, yes, I, di- I, I mess up and I do, I do bad things from time to time. And of course, I have sinned. But if you really want life change and you really want the gospel to empower you, you've got to get to the place where David is, is where he doesn't simply say, yes, of course, I sinned. He says, I, it's worse than that. I'm a sinner. L- listen to what he says. Against you, you only I've sinned. But you're justified in your blame. I was brought forth in iniquity. My sinful problem, my heart disposition towards selfishness and brokenness and, and living my life for myself, it actually began with my birth. When I was an infant, when I was in the womb even, I had this predisposition towards living my life apart from you, O oh God, and loving myself and loving my own sin more than loving you. He gets down to the nitty gritty against you. I have sinned. I've done what is evil. And it goes that deep. It goes that, that, uh, that foundational. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, said this, every time you sin, and friends, this is true of all of us, okay? Every one of us. Every time we sin, what we're saying is, I want the throne back. I don't want you to be ruling over me. I want the mastery. Give me that crown. And what we're saying to God is, get to the margins of my life. I'll let you know when I need you. Every time we willingly and in our conscience choose sin over walking with God, friends, this is what we do, and it's heartbreaking if you think about it. The Lord has shown us his way, his life, but when we choose when we choose to walk in sin, what we're saying is get to the margin, Lord. I'll say what's, what I'm going to do around here. I will be the authority. Every time you decide, I'll lie. Every time you decide, I'll break this or that commandment. I know it's probably not right, but when you do that, you're denying him and you're pushing him out to the margins. You're not just doing something behaviorally. You're playing God, self-righteousness, being your own savior, self-will, being your own boss, self-centeredness, living for your own glory. This is what Jesus is saying is the real issue in our hearts, all of us. And so Christian repentance always means not just looking at the behavior, but saying, how is this sin really simply some form of me pushing God out of the center of my life? And so people get down to the real thing when they, they name it and they admit it and they own it. But they go down to the base root where they say, it, this really is a heart problem for me. It's not simply that I get angry from time to time or that I worry, but that I actually am trying to get God out of my life, out of the center of my life. I really don't want him as Lord. I want to be the Lord of my life. And friends, this is the fundamental problem of my heart and yours. Now, good news. There is power in unmasking this. And it's so important to think about, like, for example, are you a worrier? I'm a worrier. And when we moved to Phoenix to plant New Valley, I began to see how anxious I was. And I've told you this story before, but like, I I was really anxious. I mean, who wouldn't be? We moved our family across country. Um, We had raised some money to start this new work, but 
uh, there was only so much. And each month, you know, it was being spent and there was hardly any money coming in. There were har- hardly any people in this church yet. We were meeting in our living room and I just would find myself after year one, I slept pretty good year one, but by year two, as things are beginning to launch and it's just, it's just a, a little seedling, you know, of a work and I'm wondering, is this gonna work? And I found myself worrying, unable to sleep, staying up at night, thinking about budgets, getting up early in the morning, making phone calls. What if we do this? What about this? What about this? Filled with worry and anxiety. And at the end of it, it really was control. And even though the whole reason I'm starting a church is to tell people you can trust the living God who has control over the whole universe in your life, I'm going, but I have to keep the control. (laughs) It's ironic, isn't it? God's got a great sense of humor. I say that I believe God is in control of my life with my mouth, but functionally, I was living as if that wasn't true. And I wish I could say, that's completely past tense, and now I just walk by faith every second, but it's not true. I battle control. I want to be in charge, and when I feel like I'm not in charge, I get angry at times, I get anxious, and I get worrisome. I've got to manage this. But friends, when I do that, what I'm doing is pushing the Lord to the margins, and I'm saying, I don't trust you to be the Lord of my life. I don't trust you to be the Lord over my kids. I don't trust you to be the Lord over my church. I don't trust you to be the Lord over my finances, whatever it is. But he's good, and he's the Lord. Next, we must grieve it. Repentance, you gotta own it. We must name it, and we must grieve it properly. David says, my sin is ever before me. He feels it. In other passages, when he talks about his sins, he says he feels as if his bones are wasting away. He lies in his bed at night, and he, he eats the tears that he cries. He says, in, excuse me, the Bible says that there are two kinds of grief, though. There are worldly grief, and there's godly grief. It says in 2 Corinthians 7, for godly grief produces a repentance, this is what we're talking about, that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We have to grieve it, but there is a different, there's two types of grief, and you know this. Just because you grieve and are sad about sin doesn't mean that you actually have healthy grief. As you look at your sin, you can either grieve about what the sin has cost you, or you can grieve what the sin has cost your Savior and what it's costing other people. And you see that all the time. People are sad because they got caught, but are they sad because it's breaking their relationship with God and it's breaking, it's breaking and hurting the people that they love? You can grieve what it's doing to you or you can grieve over what it's doing to others. One is godly grief. One is, is self-righteous and it's just self-protection. One is grief over the consequences of the sin and the other is sorrow over the sin itself, true sorrow. One is self-pity And the other is actually repentance. Grieve it. And I think this takes time. When you're truly caught in a major sin as David is, murder, adultery, lies, treachery, against a whole nation, really. Imagine. It takes time, but he has finally gotten to the place where he is owning it and he's grieving it properly. We thank God for that. Finally, we have to run to Jesus. 
He starts out this way in verses one through two. David says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, your hesed, your covenant of love. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your covenantal, your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Friends, the process of repentance isn't actually complete until you go to the one who can wash away your sin. So often in our self-righteousness, we want to stay away from Jesus in those moments when we feel the weight of our sin, when we feel the weight of our trouble and the problems that we've caused. And instead of running to Christ, we run away from him. I mean, who wants to be around God when you've got sin all over you? You do. Because there's cleansing in Jesus Christ. We flee him. We run from him. But Jesus says, run to me. I'm the solution to your sin. In me, you will find open arms where I will embrace you. I will love you. I will restore you. Do not run from God. Run to him. Our good friend Peter, the apostle, found this out. In Luke 5, we find Jesus. Remember? The beginning of the gospel, he calls these men to himself to follow him, common men, these fishermen, and he says, hey guys, you know, they've been fishing all day, and they don't catch anything, and then he says, try it again, try on the other side, and they're like, whatever, who's this guy, what does he know? They throw their nets, and the nets are so full, they can't believe it. It's a miracle, and Peter says to Jesus, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Get away. He he runs away. He realizes he's a sinner, and he's in the presence of holiness, and he runs from Jesus in his heart. But at the end of the gospel, when he has sin all over him, the apostle Peter, if you remember at the end of the gospels, what happens? In John 21, we have Simon Peter, after denying Jesus three times. Imagine that where Jesus Christ, you know he's the son of God, he has prayed with you in the garden, he said, will you just pray with me, and, he, and then he warns you, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, before the sun comes up. I'll never deny you, Lord, never. Christ is crucified later, but before that, Peter denies him three times, then he walks, watches his Lord and Savior die on a cross. Imagine how he's feeling. He then goes and returns to what is comforting to him, and he's fishing again. And he looks from the boat, and he sees Jesus on the shore, and what does he do? He has sin all over him. He realizes it. And yet when he sees Jesus, he jumps into the water, and he swims right at him. And when he gets to the beach, he sprints to the arms of Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus... You need to run to him. Not when you're good, because you know what? You're never actually that good. But even when you see yourself at your worst, you run to Jesus, and in the arms of Jesus, you will find an embrace. And you will find what David prayed in Psalm 51, have mercy. Jesus Christ literally is the steadfast mercy of God. Jesus is the one who can blot out your transgression and wash you thoroughly from your sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.